Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Lust. Disordered Desire. By Bell Tyndall. In the Emmy-nominated HBO show White Lotus, we're introduced to three generations of a glamorous Italian-American family. F. Murray Abraham, Michael Imperioli and Adam DeMarco play a grandfather, father and son, two of whom are in an ever-present battle with a sex addiction. Lust has made a home in this family. It has dug out and paved its own neuropathways and ultimately blown these people apart. Scene after scene, we witness these men pathologically view women as nothing more than bodies to conquer, much to their own despair. You could say that Lust is the unseen, unspoken, yet undeniable villain of the entire series. We witness it obliterate relationships of all kinds and ultimately make way for danger and death to ensue. It's a masterful case study in how destructive a force lust can be when left unchecked, not only to the objectified, but also to the one who can't help but do the objectifying. I conducted a little experiment in preparation for writing this piece. I asked five friends of mine, who would not and never have identified as Christians, for the three things that they most associate with Christianity. Out of those five people, four of them mentioned Christianity's rather peculiar sexual ethics. Now, I know that as far as research goes, this isn't the most scientific finding, but it is telling. An article on lust may just be the least surprising thing one could find on a magazine site that offers Christian perspectives on just about everything. In popular culture and common thought, Christianity is to sex what Jamie Oliver is to sugary drinks. An almighty party pooper. A tiresome force that is out to spoil everybody's fun. That's largely a result of Christian sexual ethics being reduced to a set of repressive don'ts. Don't have casual sex or any kind of sex outside the confines of marriage, for that matter. Don't watch pornography. Don't explore self-sex. Don't talk about it. Don't even think about it. Just don't. As such, Christianity's view of sex has been regarded as square or prudish at best, and oppressive and cruel at worst. And here you are, having stumbled upon an article which is about to place last back in its familiar old deadly sin category. Groundbreaking, I hear you cry. Well, allow me the pleasure of beginning this piece by saying something that is less predictable. Lust is not interchangeable with sexual desire. The two are not one and the same. Sex is good, very good in fact. According to the book of Genesis, the book that acts as the Bible's start line, is one of the first instructions ever given to humanity. It's an apparent component of our purpose, pre-original sin I might add. We're told to go ahead and multiply, to increase in number, to have sex. But it doesn't end there. 
If it did, you'd be forgiven for thinking the Bible presents sex in purely practical and procreational terms, but not so. From one biblical poem to another, this time the Song of Songs, this book is nothing short of erotic literature. It is a fully-fledged sex scene. The composition and inclusion of this book speaks volumes. It does away with the notion that sexual pleasure and desire are some kind of inherent evil. On the contrary, if it's a biblical perspective that you're after, here it is. Sex was designed by God and gifted to humanity. For procreation, yes, but also for pleasure, intimacy and well-being. So, in summary, sex is a gift, a very good one at that. With that firmly in mind, let's turn to lust. If lust is not sexual desire per se, what exactly is it? It's a perception of sex and a corresponding desire for it that has been either minimised or sensationalised. Sex is a gift, that is the Christian insight at least, but lust wants to blur your vision. It wants you to believe that sex is either more or less than a good gift. Lust seeks to disorder your desire. The belief that sex is inherently meaningless, that it can be devoid of any kind of sacred or unique value, often acts as a wide open door to lust. It is also the predisposition that tends to normalise lust, allowing it to hide in plain sight. That is, until it has damaged us and all others. Lust tells us that we can obtain a person's body without paying any heed to the rest of them. It lessens them in our sight. It reduces them. It dehumanises them. This may sound a little dramatic, but if we are the sum of our bodies, our minds and our souls, then to only desire one third of a person, to regard them exclusively as a body, is to undermine their full personhood. A more subtle, yet as pervasive form of disordered sexual desire would be to regard sex as more than a gift, to sensationalise it, to mistake it for love. Lust's other tactic is to suggest that sexual activity is tantamount to value. It seeks to convince us that to be sexually desired is to be appreciated, and being sexually active must equate to being actively loved. Lust wrongly offers us sex as a source of worth, affirmation and significance. In such cases, we may not be regarding someone as a means to a physical end, so much as a means to an emotional one. Whether its tactic is to minimise or aggrandise, lust whispers in our ear, encouraging us to regard another person as an object to possess, a tool of gratification all the while telling us that it doesn't matter, because sex doesn't matter. As is the case with all of the deadly sins, it's not that you possess them as much as they begin to possess you. Lust can be a demanding master indeed, insatiable even, and indescribably harmful. Lust has much to answer for. In its darkest and most insidious extremity, often intertwined with toxic perceptions of power. Lust has led to atrocities being committed against people who were 
ever so wrongly treated as objects. There is a reason that lust is regarded as deadly. Tom Holland recalled that in Greco-Roman households, for example, it was utterly taken for granted that the bodies of enslaved people were objects to be possessed, owned, and utilised for physical gratification. In fact, Holland recounts how their bodies were spoken of in the same terms as urinals. People were regarded as nothing more than literal places slash products for their masters to relieve themselves. When placed in this context, the sexual ethics that were being adopted by early Christians were radical, not square. The very idea that there was something morally good about standing up against the whisperings of lust was unheard of. The demand for restraint on the part of the powerful, purely for the protection of the poor and the vulnerable, was nothing short of jaw-dropping. Historians note that as the Christian movement began to bubble up, so did a rather radical sexual revolution. Not quite so Jamie Oliver-esque after all. This revolution was fuelled by the idea of Imago Dei, the notion that every person was made in the very image of the one who did the making. Therefore, every person is worthy of being treated as such, of being afforded unconditional dignity and worth, of being acknowledged for the uniquely valuable individual they are. It was also, in part, a defiant re-enchanting of sex. It was a bold reminder that sex was always supposed to be healthy, enriching and inherently good. But it is precious and fragile and therefore needs to be guarded with the utmost care. Such notions leave very little room for the reductive tendencies of lust. Christianity, in its very essence, wages a war on such things. This is not to say that Christians have won such a war, nor have they always fought this war well. To say so would be telling only half the story, and do a significant disservice to those, for example, who have shamed heaped upon them in the name of purity culture. Ironically, a culture which was slash is also fueled by reducing a person to the sum of their body parts. But the war itself is one that is still worth fighting, surely, for the sake of others, ourselves, and sex itself. The Dragon's Wrath by James Mumford I think you'd like me if you met me. I'm not quite as charming as my father. I'm fairly genial, though, and not unduly narcissistic. I'd ask you questions about yourself. But come not between the dragon and his wrath. Usually strangers, always men, playing football, driving, public transport, a minor infraction, that's all it takes... Some guy pushes past me onto the tube from which I'm trying to alight. He's ignoring the custom and nauseatingly repeated instruction to let the passengers off the train first, please. Certainly, this chap has been naughty. It's not nothing, what he's done. In the cold light of day, can't we evaluate his behaviour as careless and a touch selfish? But the thing is, I never see it in the cold light of day. To me, in the heat of the moment, it's as grave a violation as if he bullied my little brother. I scowl back at the stranger, 
He sees my indignation. What does he do? He smirks, of course. And what do I do? Turn away and get on with my day, recognising that in the grand scheme of things it couldn't matter less? No. I lock eyes with the guy. It's a duel now. Through the tube's translucent, closing perspect doors, I stare into the exultant face of my enemy, furious. Often as not, my anger seemingly erupts from nowhere. That is, I don't only get into these kind of fracas when I've skipped breakfast, or when I'm already having a bad day, already enraged, in which case a stranger's infraction would merely be the last straw. No, no, no. Usually, I'm feeling just fine before incidents like this. I can thus say of my anger what Juliet says of Romeo's love. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning which doth cease to be before one can say it lightens. Even if my knowledge that this rage is rooted in deep childhood experiences doesn't make its resurgence seem any less abrupt. Famously, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't discount the law, he radicalises it. You have heard that it was said to those in ancient times, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to judgment, whereas I say to you that everyone who becomes angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. I used to think this was an instance of rabbinic exaggeration. The phenomenological truth of what Jesus is saying, its fidelity to lived experience, eluded me. But reflecting more unflinchingly on my own anger, I now understand Jesus' warning to be dreadfully accurate. I used, naively, to assume murderers are all monsters, sadistic sociopaths straight of Silence of the Lambs or Primal Fear. Today I realise that the difference between me and most murderers, those poor bastards eking out their life sentences out of sight and out of mind in our maximum security prisons, comes down to one thing. Not character, luck. I've been lucky enough to lose most of my fights. Yet, hidden away in Jesus' warning is a profound revelation. It's there in the Greek. Everyone who becomes angry with his brother, not becomes angry with one another, nor angry with his neighbour, nor even becomes angry with his enemy. No, right at this moment, Christ decides to insist upon to remember the fundamental fraternity of human beings, which suggests that what is most deadly about the sin of anger, when it's acted upon, that is, when anger becomes a sin, see Ephesians 4, 26, is the forgetfulness, the blindness, the obstruction of vision which goes with it. What is forgotten in fits of rage? Anger forgets that its object is no mere object, no mere thing, no mere item. I forget that the intended target of my wrath is in fact my brother. In anger you lose sight of the face. You become blind to the stranger's reality, to what remains true about him, to his persistent identity, whatever he's done. You forget that he is still related to you in the most intimate way. That this guy on the tube, or this person who has hurt you, or this person who bears ill will towards you, remains a someone, not a something. 
remains a person, remains a creature of the God who loves in freedom. Flesh and blood, just like I am. But spirit, too, destined, like I am, to be united to Christ. Perhaps this still all seems too abstract. Someone who makes it real is the novelist J.M. Curtsy, whose brilliant, harrowing novel, Disgrace, tells the story of a professor of literature, David Lurie. In the aftermath of an affair with a student, David resigns from his position at a university in Cape Town and retreats to his adult daughter Lucy's remote smallholding in the uplands of the Eastern Cape. David's rural exile, however, is not fated to be a peaceful one. One afternoon, soon after David arrives on the farm, three strangers arrive, two men and a teenager, and enters the premises under the pretenses of wanting to use the phone. Without further ado, the strangers knock David to the floor. When he comes to moments later, he finds himself locked in the lavatory. His child is in the hands of strangers. Eventually, he's released. They want his car keys, whereupon he's doused in methylated spirits, the scrape of a match, and at once he is bathed in cool blue flame. David manages to get to the toilet bowl in time to extinguish the flames and survive. But when he rouses, he finds the car stolen, the dog shot, and his daughter gang-raped. This appalling incident, so difficult to read, happens in chapter 11, roughly halfway through the novel, which means that Curtsy leaves the reader completely wedded to the father's quest for justice for nearly the rest of the story. Because Curtsy refuses to satisfy the quest, the regional police won't act, and Lucy, impregnated, won't press charges. It's only in chapter 23 that one of the assailants reappears, by which time the reader is baying for blood. It's the teenager, whom David discovers peeping at Lucy through the bathroom window. The whole passage warrants quotation. The flat of his hand catches the boy in the face. You swine, he shouts, and strikes him a second time, so that he staggers. You filthy swine! More startled than hurt, the boy tries to run, but trips over his own feet. At once the dog is upon him. Her teeth close over his elbow. She braces her forelegs and tugs, growling. With a shout of pain, he tries to pull free. The word still rings in the air. Swine! Never has he felt such elemental rage. He would like to give the boy what he deserves, a sound thrashing. Phrases that all his life he has avoided seem suddenly just and right. Teach him a lesson, show him his place. So this is what it is like, he thinks. This is what it is like to be a savage. He gives the boy a good, solid kick so that he sprawls sideways. An extraordinary moment. Coetzee has his readers in the palm of his hand, because, at least at the beginning of the passage, we too feel David's elemental rage. We want what David wants, to pulverise the kid who raped his daughter. But suddenly, during the course of the passage, Coetzee starts to humanise the kid. More startled and hurt, the boy tries to run but trips over. Both the kid's clumsiness 
and then the shout of pain remind us that whatever he's done, the kid remains a human being. So the reader is made to feel conflicted, vengeful still, but now protective too, starting to fear rather than desire that the kid will be ravaged by the dog and beaten witless by the father. In other words, the reader is beginning to remember the boy remains David Leary's brother. In his rousing wartime sermon, The Weight of Glory, in 1942, C.S. Lewis writes that the load or weight or burden of my neighbour's glory should be daily laid on my back. What does he mean by this? Lewis is exhorting me to remember, continually to bring to mind, something I have forgotten about the stranger on the tube I will never meet again. Lewis is exhorting David Leary to remember something he has, more understandably, forgotten about the boy sprawled in front of him at his mercy. Lewis writes, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. For me, then, anger management does not just involve, as cognitive behavioural therapy manuals have it, becoming more self-aware. No. Efficacious anger management means becoming more other-aware. In the moment, right there on the tube, what I need most desperately is to think not more just about myself, who I am. I need to think more about who he is. My prayer, therefore, is not just that I become increasingly sensitive to my own internal state or what it is in my own present or past that predisposes me to anger. My prayer is that I learn to apprehend more vividly the identity and destiny of the person with whom I am here and now entangled, enmeshed, at odds. That I can perceive him as my brother, however momentarily estranged from me he is. One who belongs to the same family, who, as he smirks and scowls and menaces me, also bears the weight of glory. Dealing with anger requires what Simone Weil and, after her, Iris Murdoch call attention. As Murdoch puts it in The Sovereignty of Good, it is in the capacity to love, that is to see, that the liberation of the soul from fantasy consists. Anger management is about being liberated from fantasy, the fantasy that my adversary is a mere mortal. Christ's call to peace, to see the object of my anger as my brother, is ultimately a call for a reality check. Self-Obsessed Isolation by Jonathan Aitken The sin of pride takes us into a sea of puzzles. Its choppy waters of contradictions and cross-cultural currents can be difficult to navigate. Is pride the worst sin, as learned Christian moralists have sternly proclaimed, from Augustine to Aquinas and C.S. Lewis? 
or should we applaud many popular forms of 21st century pride? Pride drives parents to encourage their children, students to strive for better results, football fans to cheer on their team, and soldiers to die for their country. Black pride and gay pride have made millions of previously ostracised people more understood and accepted, rolling back yesterday's tides of bigotry and prejudice. How can the apparently good pride in these modern categories be squared with the condemnation from ancient Greek philosophers and Christian teachers down the ages that hubris or individual pride are not just bad sins, but the personification of evil? These are deep waters, Watson, as Sherlock Holmes might have said to his assistant. But they become easier to fathom if the most toxic element in bad pride is diagnosed. It is egotism with a capital E, perhaps better identified as rampant self-centeredness. Many walks of life tempt us towards self-centeredness, but some professions seem to attract more egotists than others. In this article, I will concentrate on those who make their chosen careers in the arena of public life, particularly politics. I can write about this notorious minefield of pride with some inside knowledge, because this was where I spent decades of my life climbing towards the top of the greasy pole, as Disraeli described political ambition. It was where I had a spectacular fall from grace, plummeting from rising cabinet minister to imprisoned convict. I now describe my downward spiral of this crash as a descent involving defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy and jail. The ingredients in this royal flush of crises were caused by pride. Without recognising the fault line in my personal and political character, a common failing in many prideful people, I was climbing well on Disraeli's greasy pole in the 1990s. I was in my fifth term as an elected Member of Parliament. I had held two portfolios as a Minister of the Crown. One was Minister of State for Defence, and the other was the powerful Cabinet post of Chief Secretary for the Treasury. To make my head swell further, I was quite frequently tipped to be the next leader of the Conservative Party, and as a potential successor to Prime Minister John Major. The political graveyards are littered with the long-forgotten corpses of ex-future Prime Ministers. So these transitory labels should have made a wise man humble. In fact, it did quite the reverse. A combination of what Shakespeare in Hamlet calls the insolence of office, and in Macbeth, vaulting ambition which leaps itself, gave me a surfeit of hubris. Pride is the deadliest of sins, and I was bursting with it. Politically, I began to believe that I could walk on water. I took myself far too seriously, especially when I was made the target of a campaign by The Guardian. It does not matter now what The Guardian said in their attacks, because all their feelings of resentment about them have long since left me. Suffice it to say that, in a long series of articles, they made a number of allegations against me, some of which were true, some of which were untrue, and all of which were given a strongly negative spin. In the face of this campaign, I was full of prideful anger and went for the journalist's jugular. 
I initiated a lawsuit for defamation and announced my libel action in a ferocious television speech which contained the peroration, I will cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism with a simple sword of truth. These were recklessly insensitive words of pride which came back to haunt me. Where was I as a Christian when I was riding high as a politician? To put it simply, I called myself a Christian without actually being one. I was strong on the externals. I went to church regularly. I supported Christian causes and was a church warden at St Margaret's Westminster, the parliamentary church. However, I do not think I had understood the simple truth that being a Christian has little to do with external appearances and everything to do with an internal commitment to Christ's teachings. I probably bore a disturbing resemblance to the Pharisee in the Bible story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. Even if I did not boast about my external piety quite as loudly as the Pharisee did, the humility of the tax collector was far removed from me. I was certainly not saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Nor was I doing the will of the Father, especially when it came back to the libel case. In order to win it, I did something that was against the will of the Father. I told a lie. It didn't seem at that time a terribly important lie, at least in relation to the lies I was accusing others of telling about me. It was a lie about who paid a £900 hotel bill of mine at the Ritz Hotel in Paris while I had been a government minister. I told this lie. I told it on oath in my evidence in court. To my eternal shame, I even got my wife and daughter to back me up with witness statements supporting my lie. But then my opponents ambushed me in the middle of the trial with clear documentary evidence that I had told a lie on oath. My credibility as a witness was shattered. I had to withdraw the libel case, and within 24 hours my whole life was shattered. The rising cabinet minister had impaled himself on his own sword of truth with explosive and apocalyptic consequences. I was prosecuted for perjury, pleaded guilty at my trial in the Old Bailey, and by June 1999 I was in a prison van, heading for Her Majesty's Prison, Belmarsh, to serve an 18-month prison sentence. Having proved the truth of the old saying, pride comes before a fall, I had plenty of time to reflect on how it had happened, how it could have been avoided, and how I might prevent this deadly sin from resurfacing in my life. One key discovery was that pride had turned me into a self-obsessed loner. Despite an outward carapace of gregariousness and friendliness, I confided in hardly anyone and made myself accountable to no one. Graham Tomlin hit this nail on the head in his 2007 book The Seven Deadly Sins and How to Overcome Them when he wrote, Pride is the most isolating of sins. The ultimate end of pride is loneliness. Once one has recognised and acted upon this wisdom, the chances of recognising and defeating the sin of pride when it tempts you are infinitely higher. I used to believe in an old line of verse by Rudyard Kipling. Down to Gehenna or up to the throne, he travels fastest who travels alone. 
Now I think differently. Conquering one's ego is no easy task. But if you make a determined effort to confide in and make yourself accountable to carefully selected friends, family members, colleagues or prayer partners, you will build, with their help, strong defences to the sin of pride. A Christian faith can be a powerful bulwark in strengthening these defences. I had never heard of, let alone participate in prayer groups or had a prayer partner or found a spiritual director until after my fall from grace. God has moved in his mysterious ways to bring these friends and protectors into my life to such good effect that I am now a contented priest and prison chaplain. Yet pride can still lurk as a dangerous enemy even among practising Christians. Pastoral ministry and preaching have their pride traps, but accountability and self-awareness can help to avoid them. If I ever receive a compliment on a sermon, I promptly recall the following story about John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. One day when he had been preaching in his home church of St Mary Woolnoth in the City of London, an exuberant member of the congregation fell at his feet as he came down the pulpit steps and gushed, What a brilliant sermon, Mr Newton! What a great sermon! John Newton responded, Thank you, sir. The devil himself told me that a few moments ago. The devil, as he surveys the 21st century landscape of what used to be called the seven deadly sins, must be rather pleased. These days, serious sinning is often equated with minor rule-breaking. If you can get away with it, you will not be seen by contemporary society as a sinner. Compliance has replaced conscience as the arbiter of what is right or wrong. Yet pride remains stubbornly out there, on its own, as a different and deeper category of sin. Don't worry about the distinction between good and bad pride. They are easy to separate, because the former are non-egotistical, while the latter are toxically absorbed with the self. The French language helpfully has two different words, fierté and orgueil, to make the division clear. Orgueil or self-centred, self-absorbed pride, is what C.S. Lewis rightly defined as the great sin, the utmost evil, the complete anti-God state of mind. Perhaps it takes a poacher who has been caught in this sin to recognise the magnitude of its destructiveness on all other relationship and on one's personal character and soul. Turning gamekeeper in order to defeat pride means spiritual discipline, accountability and prayer. Even so, the struggle against pride will always continue. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.